everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean McCarthy. You can read all about my experiences over the past six years of living without alcohol at unpickledblog.com. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And my guest tonight is another blogger. Her name is Allison. Her blog is Stone Cold Tempera. You'll find her at wordpress.com. And as you will hear from her delightful accent, Allison joins us from down under. Hello, Allison. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hey there. Thanks, Jean. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so glad that you are on the show. And I just... It just occurred to me I should tell the story of how you ended up uh, being recorded tonight because you made a comment on my blog. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to. And then... And then you said something about getting out of your comfort zone or whatever. And I was like, well, then I think you should tell your story on the bubble hour. And then we were like, that was about a month ago, I think. And then we were booking dates in no time. So I I threw it out there and you picked it up. So that was awesome. Oh, Jane, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. It's really funny because that night that I commented on your blog, it was nighttime for me. And I was, I'd just been, had dinner with my mom and I was telling her about my blog and the reasons why I wanted to write it and um, sort of go a bit more public with it. And my reasons were around, you know, that I really want to, you know, do some service and be there just in, you know, for other people that, you know, might be struggling. And I had explained that to her and then I read her my blog and got her blessing to publish the particular one I was talking about. And then I came home and I commented on your blog and I woke up the next morning and saw your invitation and I'm like, oh my God, you better be careful what you wish for, hey? (laughs) Yeah, it was was just, what's the word, kismet or providence. It was amazing. I love that. It's true though, you know, when you you say to the universe, okay, use me, I'm ready, like buckle up because things are going to come your way. That is exactly what happened. Incredible. Oh, I love it. Well, let's start by hearing your story. Tell us about how your relationship with alcohol unfolded and became problematic and, you know, what led you to your decision to quit drinking? Yeah, beautiful. Um, so I've grown up, um, I've always been based in Australia. I've, I grew up in Adelaide, um, beautiful part of the country, to be honest, but of course I'm going to say that. I grew up in a pretty normal family, or well, what's supposed to be normal, I suppose. I don't know that there is a normal these days, but I had mum, dad in a marriage that lasted, that was separated by death. Um, I have two older brothers and we were a pretty happy sort of family. Um, alcohol was always a part of our life. Dad came home, he cracked a beer after work at six o'clock every night. Mum cooked dinner with a glass of wine every night. They both had a wine and a beer at dinner every night and then would sit down and watch TV with a glass of wine and their beer. So to me, alcohol was just a part of everyday life. We also, we set, we you know, have pretty social life. So we, you know, we're at the cricket club or the football club every single weekend and there were some big parties and, and a big social life. You know, getting back to mum and dad, you know, sitting there with their wine and beer every night, you know, it was probably only one glass of wine and one beer for the whole night. I have no idea. I assumed it was lots. So I don't <laughs> really know. Um, I was the baby of the family, which is kind of an important part of my story. I was unintended but really well loved. I mean, I had a good childhood, but my brothers loved to call me a mistake and they called me an accident. That was their sort of way of teasing me. And uh, 
at the time it hurt, you know, I'm a little girl, obviously that, that would have hurt, but it's only in recovery that I've realized, wow, that's really stuck with me. <laughs> I might need to do some work to get over that. So, um, you know, I don't know whether that contributed to the fact that growing up, I always felt quite apart from and disconnected from people. I felt a part of my family, but I didn't feel a part of the world. Um, so what I found is that all my life I shape-shifted and I people-pleased so that I could fit in with whatever group was around. Um, something I used to do as a really little girl, and you know, you do things like uh, kids try to act like the adults around them. So, you know, kids have their toy phones and Bob the Builder stuff and trucks and all of that sort of stuff. I used to drink the last drops of mum's coffee out of her coffee cup. Mm. But I also used to drink the last drops of beer out of dad's beer mug. And that was just something I did to try and be like the adults. Yeah, so that's kind of, you know, I've got a lifelong addiction to coffee. Like I've had 10 coffees today. So if I speak a million miles an hour, it's <laughs> part nerves, part coffee. Um, Let me interrupt. But you. I, did your parents? Yeah. Did your parents? Um, were you sneaking those sips of coffee and beer, or did they know? No, they knew, and I think that uh, was a little part of it too. You know, it was a yeah. little bit of attention seeking because it got me a little bit of, oh, isn't that cute? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, I just love the taste. Like I, I love strong, bitter flavors, and so that really worked for me. It was probably when I was about 13 that I had my first proper drink and that was with mum. She gave me a, and it's interesting because I've talked to mum about this, um, it was a Tia Maria and milk, which I don't know, <laughs> it, it seemed perfectly reasonable at the time. Um, and I, <laughs> I loved it. But what I really loved was the effect. I felt really warm. I felt really mm -hmm. giggly and I felt connected with mum. Here I am doing something adult with my mum. Um, and that was just one of those real moments. And actually that's come back to me again in recovery is a moment of connection. And I think that's what I've been looking for the whole time. She wouldn't let me have another one, which was really annoying. And uh, although I didn't know it then, that's probably a clue. Um, through my school years, as I said before, I never really fit into any particular group. My friends, you know, I shape-shifted and I tried to fit on the edge of every group. So what I felt like, though, as soon as I started to feel like um, I'd been in a group for too long, then people might actually get to know me and they would find out that maybe I wasn't all that good and maybe they didn't really like me anyway, so I would move on and hang out with another group. Um, it was just, you know, I, I share that because I just think that's part of oh, a lot of what we suffer with, which is just mm -hmm. disconnection and not that feeling of belonging. Um, mm -hmm. At 16, I got my first real boyfriend who was a couple of years older than me and he started, like I started drinking properly with him. Um, to be honest with you, some of those hangovers still rank us up there with the worst of them because <laughs> I probably just wasn't all that good at drinking back then, although I thought I was awesome. Um <laughs> <laughs> tiny little side note on that boyfriend um he tried to break up with me after a year and I use those words really specifically he tried to break up with me but I wasn't having it um so I kind of stalked him and made me made him stay my boyfriend for another year which didn't really end all that well um it kind of indicates what I'm like when things don't actually go my way um, by this time, I turn 18 and I can drink legally. You can drink legally in Australia at the age of 18. I think you can in Canada too, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Most so, places, yeah. Um, 
yeah, cool. So, or not cool, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm 18. I can drink legally. The conversation with my mum on my 18th birthday, you know, I'm going out with friends. I want to go to town. I want to drink legally. Meanwhile, I've been drinking in pubs for years, but whatever. Um, and our argument was what time I should be allowed to come home. I thought it was 5 a.m. She thought it was midnight. Um, so, <laughs> you know, why did I want to go out at 7 o'clock at night and drink for 10 straight hours? <laughs> Anyway, you didn't want to miss anything, right? That, absolutely not. No way. So, um, about that time, I go to uni, um, university. I did an arts degree, which means you've got a lot of spare time. Um, so, I used all of that spare time and a lot of my lesson time in the uni bar. Um, and I really only lasted six months at uni because I just I couldn't make it work. I thought there were bigger, better things out there in the world for me. And for me, when I drink, it's not really because I want to drink. It's um, And it's always been this way. It's because I want a drunk. I have never understood people who want one drink. I don't get it. I fail to see the point. It doesn't taste that good. Mm-hmm. Um, through the rest of my teen years and in my 20s, I went out. I had a lot of fun. I drank a load. And there's some really good times in there. Like, I feel like I was writing out my sort of drinking story again this morning. And I'm like, oh, God, it all just sounds so sad. There were good times in there. But unfortunately, as, as it all progresses, you know, they just get less and less. You keep chasing them more and more and they just keep going away. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found through my 20s is that, you know, my hangovers got more and more horrific, which is weird because I hear that um, I've read that, you know, getting less hangovers is a sign that you're drinking too much. For me, I just, my, you know, I actually spent effort going into being able to drink more to increase my tolerance because I thought that was cool. So it just mm-hmm. meant I drank an absolute crap load and I got horrible hangovers. But what was starting to come into that as well was, you know, guilt. I'd behave stupidly, regret and anxiety, although I could never have told you it was anxiety. I was in complete denial about it. I didn't believe it was true. I didn't believe anxiety really existed. Um, <laughs> so I, would nev- yeah, I would never have described like describe myself as an anxious person. Um, so, yeah, that denial really didn't help me out for 40-odd years. I got married at 22 because, honestly, I didn't know what else to do. It just seemed the next thing that you do when you're an adult. I had this boyfriend. He quite liked me. I quite liked him. We got married. Um, he was a good guy. He was raised really well, great family. He actually didn't drink all that much. He would try and keep up with me at parties, but he was usually asleep on someone's couch by 10 o'clock, which I thought was really, really uncool. Um, um, at home, he was a guy, he could have one glass of wine with dinner, but I would, you know, actually I thought I would be the perfect housewife, so I thought I will cook dinner and I'll have my wine with cooking and then I'll have a wine with dinner and then I'll have a wine afterwards, but that's it. And I was able back then, you know, I'm early 20s now, I was able back then to just have those three glasses of wine, but I'll be honest, it was frustrating. It was really annoying. Um, I had, we, we, but we got along. We were okay. But it was at 23 that I actually made my first phone call to a 12-step program. It was a Monday night and I was drunk, which might be a clue right there. Um, <laughs> the lady on the phone, yeah. The lady on the phone suggested a meeting the following Wednesday. But, of course, I was fine by then. So I had clearly <laughs> overreacted and I don't it need to go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fine. I was cured. 
<laughs> um, with my marriage to my husband in my first husband in the my early twenties, I was very quickly, very restless, very frustrated, very discontented, and I thought that my husband was the problem. So I left him, and I quickly set up house with a new man. By this time, I'm 25. Um, yeah, so I'm not super proud of how that happened, but um, it is what it is. Um, my new man is who is now my husband, so I will now start to refer to him as my new husband. Um, we're still married to this day, which uh, I think we're both pretty lucky. Um, but at that time, back when I was 25, he was 35, he was a heavy daily drinker, and I thought I'd met my match made in heaven. I could drink exactly what I wanted to drink every single day, and I did. That's when I started to call in sick to work with mystery bugs and vicious headaches, and uh, that continued right up until I quit drinking a couple of years ago. Um, it was funny because I used to like expect him to kind of have a go at me. It's like, you've just got to hang over. You can go to work. But he would always say, oh, gee, you must be like properly sick because you didn't drink that much last night. I'd be like, yeah, I'm hungover, dude. Like, stop enabling me. But he did. So it was fine. I got along with it. Um, I also remember really early in the relationship that I said to him, I think we drink too much, babe. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm fine with it. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll be fine with it too. I mean, it's not like I wanted to stop drinking. I just needed to make sure it was okay. And he said it was okay. So away I went. And I just, I want to be clear, I do not blame him for any of this. Um, mm -hmm. That's just important to me. Um, at around 30, so five years later, I look around at my life and I absolutely didn't know what I thought my life should look like, but I felt strongly that it didn't look like what I thought it should. Um, you know, we had a good life. We've got a great house, great. We've got two cars, we've got pets, you know, all the staff jobs. Um, we didn't have children. And to be honest with you, that was a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't go out and try and have children. I was just shocked we didn't have them. And that's weird, I know, but you know. Um, <laughs> I always sort of expected to find um, some grief around that and I never really have. So I think in the end, the right things happened there. Um, I'm 44, I feel like the time's passed. Um, and I'm okay with that these days. But yeah, there was, there was certainly some years where oh, I struggled a bit. Well, what I used to do back then was uh, if we were going out to a party and I thought, well, maybe there's a chance I'll be pregnant, I'll do a pregnancy test and just double check if I can drink tonight. And that was kind uh, of my thinking. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was weird. Anyway, that, that's what I did. Um, at around that time too, I'm drunk, I'm alone in bed. My husband used to travel sort of six months of the year too. So it was on and off. And definitely when he was gone, I would uh, double down on my drinking. Um, I don't know why, because he never held me back. But yeah, I don't know. Um, so one night I'm decided I'm going to take my wine to bed with me because that's normal. And uh, I'm literally, I pick up the yellow pages and I've got one eye closed while I'm trying to focus on this tiny print and I ring a 12-step program again. And I'm just ringing this guy. I'm, you know, I said to him, I feel like an idiot because I'm, I'm literally sitting here in bed. I'm drunk and I'm ringing you. And he said, well, it's kind of what an alcoholic might do, you know. 
like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not why I'm ringing for you to call me names. Um, <laughs> it was an interesting conversation, actually, because at one point he was obviously interrupted by someone and I heard him saying to them, like he sort of covered the phone but didn't really, and he said to this person, you know, go away. I'm talking to a really sick woman here. And I thought... <laughs> Oh my God, I'm not sick. I'm just drunk. It was, <laughs> it was one of those moments that, again, it should have been a clue. Um, I can't remember the rest of the conversation, but, you know, I've written down here, it would be 12 years before I would walk into a meeting. Mm. So, yeah. So by now, as I said, my hubby and I are married. Uh, I've sort of talked through a bit of that. Oh, a lot of my drinking involved was, preloading I needed to drink before I could leave the house um I used to sort of have a little party before the party I would you know get champagne um I really wanted vodka because vodka would do the job properly but I would try and be civilized and start with wine or champagne um and it was a friend it was a bit of a joke amongst my friends what would happen is I'd have a couple of glasses of wine while getting ready but it might be a 20 minute drive to get to the place we were going so I would top up my glass of wine and I would get in the car with my glass of wine and we would go off to the party and I would walk up to the front door and knock on the door and be welcomed while I still had my glass of wine which had been mostly drunk by then and so a lot of my friends would would laugh and ring me the next day and say got one of your glasses here do you want it back and I was like yeah well I need it I'm running out um (laughs) I've been living them all over town (laughs) yeah pretty much Oh dear. And, you know, going out, I was always worried there wouldn't be enough booze. So Nick and I, my hubby and I, we always made sure we took enough to put down an army. Absolutely. We never ran out. Actually, that was one of the things when I did eventually go to a meeting, the very first person who shared talked about that um, she was shamed because whenever she ran out of alcohol, she would pack her kids in the car and drive drunk to the, um, what we call a bottle drive-through bottle shop. And I, that was the one thing I did not connect with her on because I'm like, who runs out of wine? Who does that? That's just, just bizarre to me, yeah. Um, so, you know, this is kind of what my drinking's like. It's all just such a clue when I look at it on paper. It's hilarious. Um, so through my 30s, this is where I start to talk my, my, my career, my career starts to really take off. I worked in retail and I still do. Um, I worked my way up, you know, from assistant store manager to store manager to store manager of bigger stores and also taking on projects. Um, And eventually I got what I thought was my dream job at the time, which was regional management. Um, So, you know, I had a job that crossed two states and I don't know if you know Australia very well, but two states in Australia is a really big chunk of the country. Mm I was in charge of up to 24 stores, huge um, dollar volume. So it was a, you know, I'm at the top of my career. So things are really fine, right? I found that as I was doing really well in my career, that actually I was falling completely apart inside. That's when I really realized that, wow, people think really, really differently to me. And I honestly didn't understand that. Um, in the first year of that job, I could come, what would happen is you'd do a job, um, regional management in retail means you visit stores and you're supposed to spend as much of your time as you can in stores. You want to be um, face-to-face coaching and helping and and teaching and all of that sort of stuff. But I would find I would do that all day and then I would come home and be faced with a day's work of admin. And that was okay for the first year because I would sit down at my laptop, 
I'd have my wine and I would punch out another day of work and that was fine. But as the job got too stressful and too much for me in the second year, what I really found I was doing, I would tell myself I'm going to go home and do all this work, but I would get home, have a glass of wine and just have a big case of the stuffets. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to put a brick on my head. I will get up early and I will do the work in the morning. And I absolutely never got up and did that work in the morning, not one time. So I, yeah, from there, I just really started to struggle. I wasn't doing the job as well as I wanted to do it. Um, and I was really suffering from depression and anxiety. But again, I just didn't really want to admit it. Um, somewhere in there, it was actually around 2011, I woke up with another huge hangover and I called in sick that day. Um, and I worked out that I'd actually called in sick to work with a hangover at least 20% of my time. And I really mm. thought, you know what, that's ridiculous. Just before that, actually, it, what makes this relevant is I had read an article years ago um, about functional alcoholism. And I thought, oh, okay, that's me. I'm a functional alcoholic. Well, that's okay. I can be that. Um, <laughs> as soon as I get... Functional. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. I thought... As long as I stay functional, it's all good. You know, when it gets dysfunctional, I'll I'll do something about it. And that's how I felt this particular day back in 2011. I woke up and went, you know what? This is actually getting dysfunctional now. I need to do something about this. So, you know, I'm sitting there in bed. I've called in sick. I'm working it all out. I'm like, okay, I need to give up drinking forever. And clearly that was ridiculous. So I thought, you know what? I need to give up drinking for seven days that'll do the job and I knew that seven days would not do the job I had tried that before it did not work so I came up with this 30-day plan um, and googled quit drinking for 30 days there are a lot of pages out there that will talk to you about that um, mm-hmm. so that's fine I did my 30 days um, I did it hanging on by a thread Um, The first two weeks, I still woke up with headaches absolutely every day and they actually got worse before they got better. I couldn't believe it and I was so, to be honest, I was really pissed off Um, because I'm like, everything's supposed to be better. I'm supposed to be a better human. I'm supposed to be more patient. I'm supposed to turn into a morning person and I certainly shouldn't be getting headaches that are actually worse than the headaches I had every day when I was hungover. And I was telling this to a friend of mine who's got a bit of a medical background and she said to me, honey, that sounds a lot like withdrawal. And uh, that shocked me. I I couldn't believe that I could possibly have been drinking that much um, that I had and that's what it was. Uh, Anyway, after the withdrawal passed, you know, the last couple of weeks of that month, I remember actually I was driving to work, you know, most mornings feeling awake. And pretty good and thinking to myself, why would I go back when you can feel like this? Like, that's just crazy stuff. But I did. It was about day 36. And I don't know if you've ever been to Sydney, but my hubby and I went to Sydney for a weekend. And what Sydney does in beautiful spring days is it 
glistens. It's mm. just a beautiful city. And we found one of those, well, I was going to say an old pub. It was a ye oldie pub, but, you know, not old compared to what you might find in Europe, but it was an old pub. <laughs> and it's just down there at the base of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and it's so romantic and the sun's shining. And, of course, a glass of Chardonnay belongs in that. So I had that glass of Chardonnay, but to be honest with you, I felt so sad for myself that day. I just knew that it was wrong. I knew it wasn't right for me at all. You know, it was one glass of wine. I didn't even finish it. I'm fine. But within three months, I was back to full-time drinking and worse than ever before. I stopped pretending to be civilised by having, you know, two or three glasses of wine before I hit the vodka. It was half a glass of wine before I hit the vodka. Um, and uh, I just found I was all the way back and worse to, than when I started. So that leads me on to sort of the next four years until I really get sober. And those four years were years where I just, I tried to quit every single day and I drank every single day. Occasionally I'd get a week. Um, once or twice I got two weeks, but I just couldn't do it by myself. One night I actually had a drunken argument with my very best girlfriend. We were both pretty drunk but I actually hit her. There were nights when I did that to my husband too, you know. Um, uh, he did, he would do this revolting thing where we would get drunk together, we'd have, a, you know, a really stupid argument and he would do this crazy thing where he would go to bed and go to sleep. <laughs> like, oh, I hated it. <laughs> I know, like, how bad is that? Seriously, do not go to sleep on a drunk, angry woman. Like, that's just insane <laughs> behaviour. I think it's his fault. It's totally not. But I would hit him to get him to wake up and continue the argument. Oh, I'm um, sorry for laughing. but <laughs> No, it's really funny. I would never have called myself a violent drunk. And to be honest, it's only sort of this morning while I was thinking about this that I'm like, you know what? There were times I was violent. It's true. It wasn't yeah. a big part of my story, but it's it's there. Um so, you know, I'm still falling apart. I absolutely, viciously hated myself. I was thinking that I was a weak person, that I was a bad person. You know, there's other stuff in there. I'm an attention seeker. I'm, a dr I'm very dramatically self-righteous. I hold huge grudges that I just couldn't get over. Um, and I was ashamed at some of my behavior. And honestly, that shame ran so deep. I just thought it was a part of who I was as a person. And I just, it, that stuff's just impossible to get over. Um, you know, that's all internal stuff too because I never had any of those significant external consequences. There's no DUI, there's no arrests, I didn't lose my job, um, my marriage is intact somehow. Um, you know, we didn't lose the house or anything like that. So I couldn't be, you know, that bad an alcoholic, at least not alcoholic enough to do anything about it. Um, which is where, you know, I really sort of relied on that functional alcoholic article. Um, over the years, I read, I actually, I read an article from Michael J. Fox. Yeah, that's who I'm talking about. He had Parkinson's, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, he does. I read an article where he said that he first noticed his symptoms in um, a shaking or a tremor in his hands. I'm like, oh, my God, maybe that's it. So I had I actually Googled to find out if my shaking in my hands might actually be Parkinson's. Because you Were know, you hoping it was Parkinson's because you didn't want to quit drinking? Uh well not really, but you know, I just <laughs> <laughs> it's just so Any 
anything but alcohol, right? Yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah. yeah, and it's not even anything but call me alcoholic. You can call me that, but don't don't. I don't want nothing to do with anything that means I have to stop drinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I also googled. I wondered if I might be bipolar. So I Googled that and learned that there's bipolar one and two. And I thought, well, maybe I'm bipolar two. But the truth is, eventually I just settled for depression, anxiety, and I did eventually start to get some treatment with that. But I'm not a super compliant patient and uh, I tended to lie about how much I drank. Um, so I never really, you know, that that never lessened for me. I always thought, you know, I never really hid my drinking. It was a part of who I was. So everybody knew I drank pretty heavily. But I realized um, actually that I did hide it. What you never saw was, you know, if I was at a work dinner, I would have one or two. I'd be totally civilized, one or two glasses of wine. I'd drive home and then have the bottle. Um, You know, even when I was pouring my vodkas at home, and I did not need to hide my drinking at home, but I would pour a drink and I would take a couple of gulps straight from the bottle. You know, just to make sure I got enough to put a brick on my head. I stopped answering the phone after 7 o'clock because I just didn't trust um, how I was going to be on the phone. You know, there'd be weeks when I would get, I would have, you know, what I call a good drunk where I could talk and I would make sense and I could be, you know, all of those fabulous things that alcohol makes me. Um, But there'd be other weeks when I'd be a sloppy, slurring mess. And I never knew when that was going to happen. So I just stopped answering the phone after seven o'clock. So yeah, I did hide my drinking in in those ways. But I guess in the end, you know, I get to February the fifth, two thousand fifteen, which is my day one. And what I often say about there's no dramatic bottom thing that happened. Um, I was, you know, inserting myself into someone else's, um, not in the inappropriate way, but I was, you know part of the drama of someone else's relationship a friend of mine was getting married to a bloke that she didn't end up marrying thank god but I somehow made all of that my drama and all about me when it was actually nothing to do with me and I you know was really building that into myself but then I just realized I simply have reached my pain tolerance threshold um life just got black and really bleak I could see absolutely no future nothing was changing and well and while I didn't consider suicide I got to a place where life just wasn't worth living um at all I just couldn't see that if things didn't change and I'd been living Groundhog Day for so long that I didn't see that life could change um Mm -hmm. and I certainly didn't want what I had so on that day I was just hung over again I was in deep distress again. I couldn't stop crying again. And normally I would have called in sick, but I didn't that day. So when I got to work, <laughs> I walked in that door and for the first time in my life, I saw how sick I was in the faces of my colleagues. They did not know what to do with me. I couldn't control myself at all. It was either staring vacantly into space or floods of tears. My two IC, who I didn't know very well at the time, looked at me and said, really want to hug you but I don't know you well enough um Mm. I just said to him you know what get away from me because if you get near me I'm going to cry and none of us need that um but finally I did actually decide to go home that day and uh I decided to go to the doctor and what I really was intending to do there I didn't intend discussing my drinking with him at all um I did not intend to stop drinking that day it was unbelievable I said to him I'm sad I can't manage my life I'm really struggling um you know and he did what 
you know, I expected him to do, which was prescribe me an antidepressant. And it was just an off-the-cuff reminder to me as he handed over the script. He said, you know, you can't drink while you're taking these. Mm. And I was like, oh. You know how often, Jean, you know what we do in that situation normally? We'd go, yeah, whatever, okay. Yeah. You nod yeah. and go, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, yes, sir, I, I will not drink. But I looked at him and I just said, you know what, I quit drinking every single day and every oh. single day I drink. And I looked at him again and I just said, you know what, I can't do that by myself. I cannot drink, drink quit drinking by myself. And he, he looked at me and he said, do you want to? Like, yeah, like my brain screaming, no, I don't want to quit. <laughs> I somewhere in there managed to say, yeah, I do want to quit. And so look, ultimately uh, what I thought he would do, which is, you know, direct me to, you know, a uh, recovery program or to, to therapy, which in my mind were the two worst things he could possibly do. But I was finally in enough pain where I would just do it if I had to. What actually happened is he prescribed me a medication to help with cravings. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I walked out the door and I was on my own. But um, somehow a miracle happened that day because I went home. I didn't drink that night. And where are we? Two years, eight, nine months later, I haven't had a drink since then. So really that's where my journey, my real healing starts. So I think I've raved on for like ever. And I'll stop there. I'm really sorry. You're really sorry. Oh my gosh, that was, that was great. Don't stop. Well, I want to I want to hear more about the medication that your doctor prescribed to um, limit uh, cravings because we haven't talked a lot about that on that sh- on this show, and I do no, feel like it is becoming more common. So, can you tell me like what that experience was like and how it helped you? Well, um, yeah, it was actually. Is it? Um, can I say the name of the drug? Is it's called in Australia? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, any Oh, well, let's just say neither of us are medical professionals, and this oh. is not a recommendation or medical advice. This is simply Alison relating her <laughs> experience. Hopefully that makes lawyers happy. <laughs> okay, good. So it was a drug. It was, it, it's, it's kind of important because a lot of the drugs you hear about are antabuse um, and or naltrexone, which mm-hmm. this drug was not, that it was a different one called uh, Campril, that's C-A-M, for Mary, P-R-A-L, um, and it works more like, whereas the other drugs make you sick if you drink, yeah. Campril works more like an antidepressant in blocking, now I'm not a medical person, I have no idea, I'm going to say it wrong, but it kind of blocks the voices that tell you to drink. Mm. That's probably the simplest way I found it to be. Um, and, you know, while I know that antidepressants and drugs like that don't take effect immediately, they usually take sort of a week or two to get up to full strength and to really um, get your brain operating the way that you want them to, um, I found that I didn't overly struggle instantly. I was pretty good right from the first moment of taking that medication. Um, and I did. I found the voices absolutely dampened down right from day one. I could there- not believe it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, mm. And were there that's, other side effects from it? Did it like, did it make you also like less hungry or more hungry or unable uh, to feel joy? Or did it hijack your pleasure reward circuitry in other ways? What I think was well, interesting because I decided that I would just throw the kitchen sink at this thing. I thought, you know what? He's prescribed me antidepressants as well. I'm on this drug. I'm just going to take it all. 
And so I don't know what did what, to be honest with you. I found um, what happened for me was that, yeah, I really leveled out. I've always been a high drama person. So either I'm the happiest of happy or I'm the saddest of sad. Um, But I found that whether it was one or both of the drugs, I really evened out and I was um, quite in the middle most of the time. So, and that was one of the things I was afraid of is that, you know, I liked my high moments. I didn't want to be without Mm -hmm. them. But again, this, where it comes back to my pain threshold, I'd reached it. You know, if I have to do without a bit of joy, that's fine. It's better than what I had. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Physically, the camper really didn't, um, I honestly couldn't tell you too much about how I felt about side effects. How long did you take it for? Do you still take it? No, I don't. I took it for five months. Um, the, I, you know, having Google, because I Google everything, Dr. Google for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, doctors <laughs> love that. <laughs> I know they do so much. Um, what I, from what I'd understood is that most people are on it for six to 12 months. And, uh, okay. But of course, yeah. of course, I'm not Over like everybody cheaper. else. So right. I only need it for five months. But uh, yeah, by five months, what I had done um, is I'd started a real journey of recovery and I felt, you know, I'm going to be okay. But I also knew that, hey, if this doesn't work out, I'm quite happy to admit failure and I'll go back on it. And that, yeah. that open mind is really important, I think. You know, it's funny how you say that it started working right away, even though it was supposed to take time. I have yeah. a family member who's a doctor, and and I'm always trying, like, you know, the acupressure mats, and, I like, I've always got, like, something that I'm trying. And I'll say to her, have you heard of this? And she, she always says, oh, you'll probably see about 30% improvement with that. <laughs> yeah, because she yeah. says like placebo gives you thirty percent improvement. So like if it she's like if it works for you and you like it, that's great. Like it's it then, probably yeah. will help you. But I had the same experience when I started taking antidepressants. Um, I take quite a mild one. Same thing. I just needed to like I needed to live in the middle, you know. And um, yeah. I found I think I was so relieved to be addressing it that my symptoms started to improve you know, quicker than possible, you know, than than the medication could have possibly impacted just because it was such a relief to be moving forward and actually doing something. Yeah, I am nodding my head off here. That is exactly it. The act of taking some action. Yeah. You, know, you feel like you've done something. Now, when you, you spoke the truth to that doctor, and like you say, you know, it's not like you were lying about things, but you also weren't being completely honest with other people. Did you feel relief in the truth? Did you feel freedom in just telling him the truth? Um, yeah, look, it was really, really scary, but yes, that's the truth. But you know what? The truth, I felt two things, huge relief huge amount of freedom those words you use are absolutely true but I felt a huge amount of fear because now that I've said it out loud now I'm going to have to do something now now you might take away the one thing that helps me cope right yeah Yeah. I know Uh, and it's so scary because then you think like I can't I'm like I can't keep going how I'm going I'm going to either implode or die or disappear you know get arrested or something but (laughs) but I also know that this has been working for me. Who am I without this and how's it going yeah. to work? I can totally yeah. relate to that fear. 
I can totally relate to that. I have a couple questions for you based on what you based on what you said. So I just want to back up a little bit. Um, you talked about doing a 30-day challenge, and I'm curious what you think of those. As you said, you know, there's a lot of them out there. There's a 100-day challenge. There's Dry January. There's a year without alcohol. Um, and I, I think, like, I like that sometimes they get people started and and they keep going. But I also, have, I always worry that exactly what happened to you will happen. Is that, you know, it gives you a taste of it, but you go right back and maybe get worse yep. after. What do you think of those kinds of challenges? Do you recommend them to people, or how do you suggest people approach that? Um, I oh, look, I think they have their place. I really do. Um, and I think. Just like moderation is for an alcoholic, it's part of the journey. It doesn't work, but it's part of the journey. It's important. Um, I can't remember. I think it might have been a woman on one of your one of the Bubble Hour podcasts that actually talked about um, moderation. And I know I'm sort of skipping the subject. I'll come back to 30 days in a second. But someone talking about um, moderation being an important part of the journey and I remember thinking oh that's ridiculous it totally doesn't work but then I looked back at myself and kind of went I tried everything to moderate it's totally a part of my story Um, and the same with 30 days you know it's part of it if you can go without a drink 30 days absolutely happily you know sometimes I guess some people just feel like maybe I drink too much and I need some reassurance do a 30 day thing and if you've you know perfectly happy and go back to a glass of wine over dinner occasionally great but for someone who's really concerned about their drinking that they binge when they don't want to or that they're drinking daily when they don't want to 30 days doesn't work but it will teach you a whole bunch of stuff did you look back on that period of sobriety you know as things were unraveling did you look back on that did it give you hope did it did it serve you um you know even though things kind of got dark after that well, it was actually interesting because it did serve me. Um, it's it's like it was things that I could go back to and realise that's what that was. Like those first two weeks when I had those headaches, that was withdrawal and I had no idea. Um, so, but, so now when I got withdrawal with my last um, day one, I understood what it was and I knew what to look out for. I didn't just think, you know, because honestly, that's why people when they quit drinking go back to it really quickly. You feel worse. Yeah. You know, why, why would you bother? So, yeah. yeah. So if, if they it, don't it have that insight. That. Yeah. yeah. It, it's true. If if you don't have that insight of, like, this is confirmation that you are addicted to this. Your body is <laughs> yep. addicted to it. So, uh, it's, you know, some people take it as, oh, shoot, this is, this is it. Like, this is my sign. And yeah, you're right. Some people are like, "No, I need that. I'm shaking." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I let me see. Oh man, I wrote down so many extra questions. Um, you had a lot of constraints. You your drinking ended up putting constraints around you. You know, you can't use the phone after seven o'clock, or you know, you have you had to sort of build in some um, framework to to in order to protect your drinking almost. Um, what does freedom feel like now by comparison so one of the very first things that I did that really I was so delighted about when I first quit was I went late night shopping I went yeah (laughs) me too (laughs) I I couldn't believe it you know it's just here I am out in the shops 
not drunk. I've left the couch and I'm buying clothes and it's so cool. I was so happy. So, yeah, that was certainly one thing in the early days. I totally, I ran home and I was um, blogging on a website and I'm like, guess what, guys? This is what I did tonight. It was so cool. Oh, that is I mean, so funny. Yeah, I mean, the freedom means that I can be anywhere in any place, you know. I don't have to avoid anything. You know, okay, so another one, what's coming up this Christmas will be, I don't know what um, Christmas retail shopping hours are like um, in Canada, but um, coming up, there'll be some late night trade, you know, trade till midnight, and then those few days before Christmas, there'll be 24-hour trade. So I've absolutely already put up my hand. I will be available, do whatever you need with me. I will work whatever because I can. Whereas Mm -hmm. three years ago, that would have been the most horrifying thing ever. And what I would have said to people is how disgusting and disgraceful the government is to allow that kind of thing to happen. Whereas now I'm just like, hey, that's going to be a novelty. That's going to be great fun. Bring it on. You know, I can leave the house. Wow. So tell me, what are some words that you use to describe yourself now? Like if you... I mean, I'm sure you don't have a list, you know, written on your palm. Yeah, I'm don't just throwing this at right, you. Yeah. <laughs> but just by comparison, like, just what comes to mind when you think of your life now? Oh, I'm I'm free, and the thing is, I'm open. I uh, have a. I honestly feel like my heart has absolutely been opened, and what I can be. Oh God, the other word would be connected. Um, mm-hmm. I do feel. So much more connected to my family and to my friends and new friends, you know. And it's so fine for me to meet someone and just fall in love with them. Um, and I'm really comfortable with that now. Uh, so yeah, I'm free. I'm connected. I'm in love. That is probably the main words I would use. How ridiculous is that? Oh, it's beautiful. Do you feel like you've freed that part of you that is the people pleasing, shape shifting? Um, you know, accept me or how do, how has that changed? How has that healed for you? Uh, well, it's a progress, you know, I've, <laughs> I haven't solved all of it, but, um, and this is the thing, it's like, oh my God, my life is so wonderful now and comparably it absolutely is, but I've still got all my foibles, you know, I've still got all my insecurities, I still, you know, get uncomfortable and want to eat, but, um, you know, I... <sighs> You know, all that shape-shifting, I'm less likely to do that. I really, I've discovered that, you know, everyone's going through their own stuff. They Mm -hmm. don't actually care, you know. And I found my response to me, like people's response to me, is so much more positive and encouraging and loving when I'm just honest. You know what? Mm -hmm. Don't don't want to go to your house this weekend. I'm tired. Rather than oh, yes, I'll, I'll definitely be there and, you know, then ring up the day before and go, can't make it, I've got an excuse. Right, yeah, and then feel yeah. crappy about it. Yeah. Um, I have to say, when I started telling the truth, you know, because I think being a codependent kind of other-focused person is always telling whatever lie you have to tell to fit, yeah. right? Like, I'm yeah. okay, everything's fine, I'm happy, I love my life, everything's perfect, Um, you know, I like pizza when you really want tacos or whatever, (laughs) whatever little lie, like you're just, you like, it never occurred to me to just tell the truth. Yeah. And like, I am still just so amazed that I can say like, (laughs) nope, I don't want pizza. Like what? (laughs) 
Who knew? Who knew that was perfectly acceptable and reasonable way to behave? It's a miracle. It's amazing. Um, We were going to talk a little bit about service and about helping others. I want you to talk about your blog and some of the things that you're involved in. Tell me about those things and, and how they have served you in recovery and how you serve others with those things. Yeah. Well, blogging is a little bit interesting. It does two things for me. It, you know, it helps me, you know, clear out some of the thoughts I've got. I still have a lot of voices in my head and they need straightening out. And I find writing helps me do that. Um, I've always, uh, I feel like, so now here I feel like a little girl when I share this, but I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, but I was always too scared. You know, my writing's not good enough. It'll never happen, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't write. And it's only just recently occurred to me that, you know, how to be a writer? just write some stuff (laughs) you know I think that was a revelation in Bali actually and um so you know uh I can't tell anything I can't tell a short story I'm really sorry um but blogging helps me you know get my story straight it helps me you know get my thinking clear but it also provides you know if someone else you know reads that and thinks oh god I'm not the only one you know that is that is the ultimate to me is if someone else just feels slightly less alone because of what I share, that is gold. And it just might kick them off onto a journey of their own, you know, recovery. Um, the other thing vlogging does for me is because I'm pretty open about my recovery, you know, family and friends read that thing. So I have to keep it pretty real. I have to be pretty, um, I can't just use poetic license to make a story seem a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. I have to be on it. So that's, that's really, that really helps me. It can be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I I write a note for myself just saying I can think through ideas and I write them down and then I can just see how true they are. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when it's in my head, I don't know. But if it's on paper, I'm better with that. Um, The other thing I do that really, um, you know, sharing a story and doing a little bit of service, one of the most favorite um, resources I found in my very early days of sobriety, I hadn't found 12 Step yet, but I stumbled across um, Mrs. D is going without a lot of Dan's blog. Oh, and that was wonderful. Oh my God, I'm so in love with that woman. Um, and that, you know, the way her blog would set out, and honestly, if anyone's struggling, I totally recommend going there because her blog set out in the first year of sobriety and it set out really, really well and I was able to follow that through and it really helped. But then I gradually... Uh, followed the link across to a website called Living Sober, um, which is a New Zealand-based website, but it's got members from absolutely all over the world. Um, And I have found that, I guess, blogging or sharing there, number one, helps me. um, But absolutely, every time you share, even if it's help, I'm in pain, I'm lonely, Sharing that just still, you'll get help. Other people will come to you and they'll say, be strong or, you know, I'm here for you. Um, But it helps other people feel less lonely because sometimes someone might respond, you know what, me too. And I Mm -hmm. think me too. And I really think it might have been you that I heard that from for the first time um, back in bubble hour days, my early days of my sobriety. Um, I honestly have come to believe that me too is the most powerful two words you can say to someone. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think I think that's a Brene Brown sentiment. Um, I think that's where I learned that from is from her yeah. work. Is is just the power of hearing that, and I really feel it's especially true for people in recovery from from addiction because addiction is so lonely. 
for yeah. most of us, especially if it's coupled with codependence. I mean, you talked about imposter syndrome and, and you know, trying to please other people or trying to be who you need to be. I mean, that's so lonely. Yeah. Um, you never feel truly accepted and you, you're just only always, I mean, you really drink to sort of soothe that pain. So I, th- I feel that hearing me too and connecting with other people, be it online or in person or, you know, even better, both, yeah. it is the most powerful antidote to addiction. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that'll help. Combined with not yeah. drinking. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of yeah, kind of a a big part. <laughs> so, um so living sober helped you um, you know, build some community and get sober and now you help other people on there too, don't you? Yeah, well, I'm what I've uh Lotta just needed a little bit of extra help in um you know, I guess it, uh, administrating, but not really just um, keeping an eye on the community and being there as extra support for the community. It's now got over five and a half members, uh, five and a half thousand members, sorry, not five and a half members. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's become quite a, a huge community and we have people registering absolutely every day, you know, and you know what it's like in those first moments um, and often they are day one people. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a lot has just asked a few of us to volunteer. We just volunteer our time, make sure we log in, uh, you know, a little bit more frequently and just keep an eye on the feed. And, you know, we're there just to welcome people as they come in, but also just to, you know, um, if someone's in true distress and may need actual services, that, that Lot is aware of that and she can um, manage that. So, and I find that I just, it doesn't even feel like service to me. It's just part of what. I would do in an ordinary day anyway and I, I love it and I love that website mm-hmm. and um, you know that website has actually been the one that really was my first breadcrumb in a way um, into recovery because it's, you know I landed on Mrs D is going without and then I landed on living sober and from living sober I find the bubble hour and from the bubble hour I find you know these women talking about uh, 12 step and while I thought that was not for me, I listened to all of these these women talking about it. And I'm like, well, they're cool and it's good enough for them. Why isn't it good enough for me? So right. I go along to 12 Step and I have found that uh, life-changing. Um, so, you know, just you just don't know where a little bit of service will lead a person, you know. And I just, oh, I just that's the beauty of it to me. I just find it a miracle. It is a miracle. And you know what, just, but just to circle back to what we started with, it's just like you being on this show. Like you, it, you had an open heart and you were willing to take up each next opportunity to yeah. And I think that's a big part of it is, yeah. is just open up to where this can take you and, and see what happens next. And yeah. it actually took you to Bali recently. Um, oh, yes. We have we only have about five minutes left, but I want to oh make sure. Oh my God! Sure you I can't tell us believe a little that. bit about this. Okay, quickly, Bali. So um, I heard Taryn and Dawn both on the Bubble Hour, and I loved both of their interviews. And they talked about their retreats. And it was earlier this year that I heard Taryn uh, in particular, and I finished that recording. And I said to my husband, "I am going to Bali. I don't care what you think. I don't care that it's with a whole bunch of strangers to a foreign country. I am going." 
Um, so, of course, you make that sort of decision and where you go. And then I just found it amazing that it, it was a long way out of my comfort zone to, you know, fly to a whole other country to go and hang out for, for eight days with a bunch of women you've never met. And I, I just find that is something I could never have done in the past. But, you know, even from, you know, emails with Dawn handling, you know, payments and details, uh, you know, private Facebook group welcoming us all to, you know, the group that was going to Bali and then landing there. It was just, you know, we all got there with open hearts. That's what it was, was, you know, okay. we just landed there ready to do some healing and ready to share ourselves with each other. And I didn't, I knew I would fall in love with a couple of women over there. I did not know I would fall in love with 17 of them with one of them being me, you know, (laughs) honestly, seriously, I'm trying to cry right now, but um, like, I just got such a sense of I'm okay there. Yeah. And it was, it was honestly the most it was a wonderful experience and it is up there with one of the most wonderful experiences of my life I I couldn't recommend it enough I um did the is it Taryn often sends out a little exercise before the retreat where you sort of ask yourself like what are your fears about the retreat what do you hope to get out of it but for me the big question was what is my fear my biggest fear was that I wouldn't like the other women on the first one that I went on and because um, I'm, you know, pretty judgmental, I, or at least I, yeah. I was at that point, <laughs> you know, I hadn't quite healed that yet. I didn't, I didn't know what awaited me. And I had told myself, well, you know, if I don't like it, the other people, I'll just do the yoga and hang out in my room and read a lot of books. And I loved, like you say, every one of them because, yep. because the, you sort of let go of this expectation of, I'm going to have some friends and I'm going to have some enemies and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you just, everybody accepts each other where they're at. And such a different mode than we are in, in life, you know, yeah. I think when you're out in the world and you're fighting for survival and you're working and you're competing and you're whatever, like in line at the bank or whatever, like we are a little bit pitted against each other in one way or another. Um, oh. And, you know, even just driving, you know, just driving. We're trying to get yeah. ahead. We're trying to get past. We're trying to get around. And But when you're sitting in a group like that, whether it's 12-step or a recovery group or a, a retreat, there is a sense of just holding space for each other and meeting each other where you're at. Yeah. And even I have found, and I'm curious if you found this too, that even when someone does, you know, that maybe they're, you're not quite connecting or you're finding them to be like, oh, that's not how I'd handle that or, you know, I've grown past that reaction kind of thing. You still sort of know that's just where they're at today. And next time I see them, they'll be a little bit different and I'll be a little bit different. And Oh, it's just so amazing. So So true. It's so so true. It's beautiful. Sorry, I hear I'm interviewing you and I just went off on a tangent because... No, 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 that's good. It's a conversation. There are two people talking those. It is really just so amazing what happens when people get together in that space. Um, so we were, I was just going to ask you about patchwork recovery is a, is a term that um, we're starting to hear come up more. It comes from William White, I think, is the guy that sort of created this idea of like, you know, we're living in a world because of the information age that people aren't just 
digging into one program and sticking with it. They're sort of sampling yeah. a bunch of different things and custom making themselves a patchwork that works for them. So just, you know, maybe in our last few minutes, just kind of rattle off for me what some of the most important patches are on your patchwork. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad um, to talk about that because I agree. I, I just, I don't think one pro one program might work for some people and that's absolutely fine. But I just don't think it, like I can't be all things to all people and I'm sure one program can't be all things to all people as well. So for me, it includes 12 step is very important to me. It has provided a really great foundation for me. I have done the steps. Well, <laughs> I'm doing the steps, sometimes great, sometimes very poorly. I have a sponsor <laughs> and that really works for me. Um, but also along with that, it's very important to me that, you know, my work with Living Sober and my participation there um, is a big part of what I do. Um, uh, podcasts. I listen to so many podcasts and just what I can think of right now, clearly the Bubble Hour, there's another guy who does Recovery Elevator and a really mm -hmm. interesting one that's not so much recovery or addiction recovery based, but it's called Vibrant Happy Women. Um, and that often, that podcast is by a woman for women. Um, and it starts with Jen often talk, asks her guests, well, what was your low point? And so it might have been anything, whatever it was. I don't know. I had babies and I had postnatal depression. That was my low point. And here's what I did and how I recovered. So in a way, it's, it is a recovery podcast and I really enjoy that one. Um, and I love that it's not all just focused on addiction. Um, I also, I've started doing yoga. Um, I've started walking for myself again. I just can't escape the fact that I feel better when I'm moving. Um, prayer and meditation has become a big part of my life now. I don't, sometimes do it well, I sometimes don't, but you know, sometimes the best I can do is get up and go, yo, God, good to see ya. And that's the best <laughs> I can do. <laughs> yo. Um, yo. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's, I think it still counts. <laughs> it um, does. And it's funny with that stuff because, you know, where I've grown up, you know, that stuff's not cool. Um, and I want to be really clear about the fact that I consider myself spiritual and not religious. I don't know why that's important to me. It just is. Um, music's really important to me and I love to really enjoy music. And I, that's important to me because in the darkest days of my depression, I stopped even being able to listen to music. I could only talk to talk back, listen to talk back radio, which I just found that really sad. Um, so music's important to me and books. I read a load of books. So right now I'm working through two books. One is the Russell Brand book. I thought, you know, everybody's reading it. I'll have a look at that. Um, mm -hmm. I often think he's just too intelligent for me, but, you know, I'll persevere. And um, <laughs> another book which was actually recommended to me by a woman on retreat is actually called A Course in Weight Loss. It's sort of based on A Course in Miracles. Um, and while I'm not desperate, to lose weight I do need to lose a little bit I am according to guidelines officially a fair bit overweight and um, uh, but this book doesn't it's not a diet it doesn't address any of that it totally addresses the spiritual side um, of your condition and I'm really enjoying working through that at the moment so yeah that's kind of a few of the the bits and pieces of my recover my patchwork of recovery at the moment well, good stuff. Well, I could talk to you for another hour, so I think you're just going to yeah, have to come back another time, or we'll have to <laughs> go on a retreat together so we can talk for yeah. a week. Um, but Absolutely. you, you Allison, you're an absolute delight. I've completely enjoyed 
hearing your story and identify with so much of it. My neck is sore from nodding. <laughs> and um, uh, I also just, I want to thank you for sharing not only your story, but your joy and your your open heart with myself yeah. and the listeners because um, we we need to hear it. And um, it, it's just, it's wonderful to hear how happy you are and and just how ready you are for whatever comes next. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's just you've made this so easy. <laughs> I was freaking out oh. earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were, <laughs> you were nervous. Silly. Yeah. It's so easy. Well, I want to thank you so much and remind listeners that Allison's blog is – now I've lost where I, I wrote so many notes that I can't see the address on the page anymore. Stonecoldtemperate.wordpress.com. Yeah, and, there's not much um, there. but Is there a button on your website where people can reach you? No, no, it's, it's a personal diary. So I guess if anyone does want to, maybe they could email you. Sure. Okay. Well, listeners, if you want to get a message to Allison and give her some feedback or even ask her any questions, send it to thebubblehour at gmail.com, and uh, I will make sure that Allison gets it. And um, maybe we have some listeners in Australia, we usually do, who are um, looking for connection, and there is a growing, vibrant community is beginning to blossom in Australia, and it's high time. So, uh, hopefully we'll hear from you as well. And um, okay, well, this has just been such a great show that I'm going to stop talking and play the music and sign off. Wish uh, you well, Ellison, and for all of our listeners, thank you so much for being part of the Bubble Hour family. I hope that you come on the show today and tell your story just like Allison. So that's it for us for today. So until next time, everyone, take good care. Own it, I didn't, not proud.